Hello and welcome to The Hills Online. For those of you I haven't got a chance to meet, my name's Taylor, I'm one of the ministers here and I'm excited for today. We are at our West Fort Worth campus and we got a little bit different setup for this sermon series over the next three weeks. We've got Hills members in the room representing all three campuses. Can I hear some love from our Hills members in the room? I'm so grateful uh, to be preaching to people, and I have huge respect for our senior minister, Rick Ashley, for preaching to an empty room over the last few weeks. Can we give some love to our pastor, Rick, for everything he's been doing? That's right. All right, one, one last thing before we get into the message. It's a special day, and so on behalf of and in honor of all of the fathers and father figures in our lives, whether they are dads that we can call or that we can hug or those who are no longer with us that we remember and honor today. For, for the dads who have adopted kids, for the stepdads, for the grandfathers, for the patriarchs of families, for the father figures and mentors. This Father's Day, can we give some loves yes. to the dads in our lives and in our church? And wherever you're watching from, if you've got a dad in the room with you, give them some love. Dads, we love you, we see you, we honor you today. Now, today's also exciting because we're kicking off a brand new series called Champion. And if you're brand new, Man, if you're exploring the truths of Christianity, this is gonna be a great day for you because we're all starting on the same page and we're gonna be looking at what it means to see Jesus as our champion. Now, let me tell you why I titled the series that way. Uh, if, if you look up champion in the dictionary, what you're gonna see is that there's a, a main definition. A champion is a person who has defeated or surpassed all rivals in a competition. At the end of the tournament, the person holding the trophy at the end of the game, the person on the highest pedestal with the gold medal, they're the champion. But there's a secondary definition of that word. A champion can also be defined as a person who fights on behalf of someone else. We hear this use outside of athletics, that someone who is a, a champion for a particular cause or for a group of people, a champion for the poor, a champion for the unborn, a, a champion for the marginalized. That's where we hear this word. Now here's why we've titled that, this series Champion. Because when we say that Jesus is the champion of his people, we mean it both ways. We mean that Jesus is the one who has defeated all rivals and no one else can compete with him. He is sovereign over the world. He is the champion. But we also mean that Jesus goes and fights for his church. He is our champion. And every champion has a proving ground. They, they, you don't just receive the title from the very beginning, but instead you go and you prove it in the regular season and in the playoffs and in the final games or in the final, final battle. And so we're going to look at this proving ground in Luke chapter four over the next three weeks. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there to Luke chapter four and just think of these next three weeks as a three round fight where we are going to be looking at the ways that Jesus proves himself worthy of the title. So we're going to begin reading verses 1 to 13 of Luke chapter 4. This is God's word for us today. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, 
And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands he will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is God's word for us today. Now, there are regular season games in team sports that really get the commentators hyped. It doesn't matter, pick your sport, whatever you're a fan of, these regular season games happen. They happen in every sport because it's when the two best teams in the league go against each other in a regular season game. And the commentators across sports all say the exact same thing. We might be watching a preview of the final we might be looking at the two teams that'll end up in the championship. This might be who we see back at the Super Bowl. That's how they talk about it because it's the two best going against each other early in the season. And that's a little bit of what we have right here in Luke chapter four. We have Jesus, the the anointed one, the chosen champion of God going out to prove himself against the devil who leads the kingdom of darkness. Now, I want to be clear for, for, all, for all of you who are joining us online, and you may, not, you may not be sure what you believe about faith. And if you're new, I'm so glad that you're here with us. The purpose of my sermon today is not to convince you that the devil exists. What I want to help you understand is as a church, we already believe that. We believe that the devil is real. So we believe that evil is not just one side of the scales of morality. That it's not just about evil and good as uh, disim, you know, unpersonal concepts or theories, but Jesus and the New Testament and the early church leaders and us today consistently see that evil also is perpetuated by a being and a personality known as the devil, sometimes called the accuser, the deceiver, the adversary, the Satan. And so for us, the devil is very real. And you may look at this temptation scene and go, right, but did any of this really happen? I mean, was this just all in Jesus's mind? Well, What I love is that there's a commentator named Daryl Bach and he says, whatever form the confrontation took, it was clear that two personalities were in the ring of battle. What we're seeing was real, whether it happened as a vision or whether some of it happened in person. I believe that much of it happened in person, that Jesus experienced this as a reality in front of him, not just a vision in his mind. And so what I want to do is I want us to look at the devil's strategy because even though his temptations to Jesus are entirely unique because it's he's going against the son of God the tactics that the devil uses he uses on us so we can learn from this fight but also I want us to look at how does our champion respond with a winning counter attack so that's what we're going to do beginning with the devil's tactics and there are two main ones the first is this if you're taking notes the devil will try to twist the truth 
See, Satan, he's called a deceiver. And uh, the, you know, one of the things that, that he is gonna do is he's going to try and use what already exists. He's not going to come up with his own stuff. Instead, he's going to root his deceit in something that has already been said or established by God. This has been true for a long time, but even it's true right here in Luke chapter four. Let me show you how. So right before Jesus goes into the desert to be tempted, he is baptized publicly. When he comes up out of the water in Luke chapter three, there is a voice from heaven. Verse 22 says, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus arrives on the scene and God speaks from the heavens, validating who Jesus is and how he feels and how God feels about him. That he is God's son and that he is pleased, that he is loved by God. Listen close. As soon as God speaks, Satan has something to twist. He's gonna take the truth that's been spoken and immediately start to undermine it. So here's what he does. Right after this happens and, and Jesus goes out into the desert, the first thing Satan does is he says, if you are God's son. Now, right off the bat, he has created a condition on the identity and said, if you're God's son, and so check this, like Satan's first move is often to second guess. As soon as God has said something is true, Satan says, really? Is that, is that really true? Is that really what God said? And, and here, I don't actually believe that Satan's trying to convince Jesus he's not God's son. If you just heard God speak from the heavens, you are my son, with you I'm well pleased, nobody's gonna convince you otherwise. But what Satan wants to do is he wants to get Jesus to operate wrongly from his sonship. That's good. Satan would presume to tell Jesus how to be God's son. That's how he's trying to twist the truth. Hear it differently. Instead of if you're God's son, hear it as, well, since you're God's son, you should be able to turn this stone into bread. Since you're God's son, you should have what you want. Since you're God's son, you shouldn't have to deny yourself. Since you're God's son, why are you out in the desert not being cared for? You see, deep down, he's twisting this idea that God is not actually providing for Jesus the way he, he should. That's what Satan's doing. He roots it in truth. And, and this is why, well, here's, here's a way to think about how, how Satan does this with us, where he, he begins to kind of try and undermine with what is true. Because the number one rule for a liar is don't get caught. Like, that, you've, got to, you've got to make it not obvious. You've got to make it subtle. You've got to make it crafty. And that's what the devil does. So think about it this way. Um, I remember being uh, some time ago in a meeting with a consultant who was talking about leadership and strategy. And she walked up to the board and she drew this arrangement of arrows that were all pointed in the same direction. And she said, this is the vision, the direction that you or your team or your organization are trying to head. By the way, if you're a business leader at home watching, this is some free consulting for you right now. I, had to, I was part of a group that was paying for it, but it's free for you, added value. Here we go. So with this, uh, with this consultant, she said, all right, this, is, this shows the direction that your organization is headed, the vision that you have. And a healthy organization, everyone's going in the same direction. And she said, one of the mistakes that we make when we look at our ideas or our brainstorms or our personnel is that we pay too much attention to, and then she drew arrows that were pointed in the opposite direction. And she said, we pay too much attention to the ideas or to the personnel who are going in the opposite direction, when really those should be easy to spot. Like if we're going in the right direction, we should very quickly see an idea that goes against who we are. We should very quickly realize uh, somebody on our team who's doing something that's completely against who we say we want to be. She said, that's not the real danger for a team because you can see that and you can correct it 
or you can cut that out of your organization. She said, the real danger. And then she erased these arrows and she drew some that were kind of in the same direction, but just slightly off. And she said, these, these are the ideas that seem like they could fit your organization, but long-term they're gonna take you in the wrong direction. These are the mentalities that inside of a team are, are going to, for initially they're, they're so dangerous because they don't look dangerous at first. They're just a couple degrees off. And so initially you think, I'm not gonna re overreact. I mean, that's, that seems right, it's not that big of a deal. We could potentially work that in, but long-term the angles get wider and wider and wider and you end up torn from where you really want to go. Here's what I want you to understand. The consultant called these skewed arrows. And when it comes to the devil, he shoots skewed arrows into our train of thought, trying to get us just slightly off the mark of what it means to follow God. He doesn't deny the idea that Jesus is God's son, but he tries to pervert and distort what it means to live as God's son. And he does the same thing with us. Jesus, however, is unfazed by this. He knows who he's supposed to be. And so he moves ahead. He quotes, as he will, three different times from the book of Deuteronomy. And God's word is enough to answer the skewed arrow that Satan tries to launch. So Satan moves to the next tactic. His next tactic is not to twist the truth, but it is outright to replace your faith. That's what the devil wants to do. Like he, he takes Jesus up to this place, and I think this was a vision, up to a spot where he can see all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time. The, the, the Roman Empire and the Mediterranean Sea and all of the world, all of these powers, all of these rules, they're, they're laid out like a video game map in front of Jesus. He could see it all. And Satan then tries to entice him with all of the benefits that could come. And so in contract terms, here's, here's what Satan wants to do. He, he basically puts in all caps the benefits. He all caps the glory. He all caps the authority. He all caps the kingdoms. He all caps this will all be yours. And then he fine prints the compromise. Come on. He says, you can have all this. It'll be incredible and you'll be able to rule and you won't have to deny yourself and you won't have to take the path that God wants if you will just worship me instead. Wow, that's great. In order to try and get us to replace our faith, Satan tries to make it about something else. So we've got to understand this is so important for us. At its core, temptation is an assault on your relationship with God. Yeah. At its core, temptation is about this very moment. Like what, we, what we've got to understand is the enemy has just revealed more about himself than he has gained ground against Jesus. The devil has a God complex. He wants to be worshiped. And not only that, what he really wants to get at is that you would turn your back on God. That's what he's after long-term. And right here, it's completely obvious in front of Jesus. But for you and I, the challenge is, we think it's about something else. See, Satan's able to make the temptation in his mind with the all caps, the all caps for Jesus is about power. It's about authority. It's about glory. But really, it's about his relationship with God. Christian, listen. Your temptation may be related to sex, but it's really about your relationship with God. Your temptation may be related to money, but it's really about your relationship with God. Your temptation may be related to, to power or status or comfort or security, but really at bedrock for the devil, it's about your relationship with God. He wants us to turn away. He wants to replace our faith. 
Now notice, I did not say erase our faith. Because for every single one of us, what we believe is that you're going to be worshiping or trusting in something or someone. You're just, you're just going to choose what it is. There, there are no true atheists. You could say that you don't believe in God. You might be watching and you would say, I don't believe that there is a God. That's fine. But at Bedrock, I believe you still base your life on something and you still trust in something. And that's what Satan wants is to replace our faith. Jesus understands this. And so he again quotes from the scriptures and he knows, he knows. In fact, think about this. In this moment, he has offered the entire world. If he can just give, give up his faith and turn away from his father, Jesus is unwilling to do it. But then just later in his ministry, perhaps inspired by this very temptation, you know what Jesus said to a certain crowd? Question he asked them. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? <laughs> like Jesus completely understood what was at stake in this moment. And by the way, when Jesus invites people to follow him and put his faith in him, Jesus does the complete opposite of what Satan does. Satan front loads all of the benefits and he tries to minimize the compromise, whereas Jesus front loads the cost and the sacrifice. Jesus looks at disciples and would-be disciples and says, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. And he leads with that. What if that was our branding as a church? <laughs> what we want to do, we're like, all right, you know what? Instead of talking first about like God's love or about forgiveness or about grace, I need to tell you about how you need to give up your way of life. Jesus let out going, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He leads with the sacrifice, with humility, with self-denial, because that was the way God wanted him to live and God wanted him to lead. Man, I've been convicted looking at this, realizing too often I might be soft peddling what God has on offer because God begins with humility, repentance, and self-denial, humbling myself before God. Not with all of the benefits, but first to recognize if I don't start there, I miss out on how Jesus even began his ministry, fasting in the desert, denying himself first, and being filled up, not by what Satan would offer, but what by God had already provided. So Satan regroups because these two temptations have not worked. And his next iteration is really a combination of both tactics. He's going to twist the truth and he's going to try and replace the faith. So he takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of this temple and says, all right, if you just, if you just hurl yourself off here, then you're going to be rescued by the angels. And then did you notice the devil steals Jesus's strategy? He's been outwitted twice by Jesus saying it is written. So Jesus goes, or Satan goes, all right, we can play that game. You want to quote scripture? The devil knows God's word. He's just going to pervert God's heart in how he de delivers it to us and misinterprets it. And so he quotes from two different prophecies about the Messiah to try and substantiate this request. And what we have to understand is when he does this, he first twists the truth, but the reason he's replacing Jesus's faith is this moment for Jesus to, to kind of contrive and put, a, put this stunt and jump off the temple was to basically put himself in the place of control with God. Think about it this way. It's getting hotter right now in the summer and um, my, uh, my son, my three-year-old loves to swim in the pool. 
He's not a very great swimmer though. And so what we have for him is the, we've got the floaties and the like attached vest and that's how he feels safe. He feels confident. And so whenever we get somewhere, we get to a friend's house with a pool, uh, we will, we'll get him in that first and then he can go in the water. But imagine if we showed up at a friend's house and before any of that happened and my son Finn is fully clothed and he runs to the backyard, looks back at me and he goes, I'm jumping in. I would be panicking and he would jump in. I'm, you better believe I'm going to run to the back, jump in the water. I'm going to rescue him. But you can also believe that's not what I want for him as a father. Because from the get-go, he is not trusting the process I have laid out. And he is showing, I want to be in control. Well, for Jesus, for him to jump off is essentially saying to God, God, instead of trusting your timing and your control, I want you to show me that you'll care for me right now on my terms, on my timeline. Mm -hmm. And the danger for us is when Satan tries to do that to us, what he leads us into is basically a, a kind of faith where we are more gaming the system than we are connecting with our heavenly father. Yeah where we treat God like my dad's a preacher and he said for a long time, we treat God like a spiritual ATM machine. And if I put this in, I better get that out. And for, Satan, and for Satan, he's trying to replace the faith and go, Jesus, you get to be in control. You can be the one who proves it and you'll force God's hand, force God's timeline. You'll be rescued and, and you'll be in control. And for some of us, the, the temptation is really driven by the fact that we want to be in control. We want to know the timeline. We want God to do what we want. And this is what Satan drives at. But again, for Jesus, he will not be swerved from his identity and from what God wants for him. And so he dismisses the devil with one more quotation from Deuteronomy, which by the way, that whole book is about remembering God's faithfulness and sends him away. So there's the devil's tactics to twist the truth and replace your faith but I don't want the whole sermon to be about that. I really want to look at and appreciate what can we learn from our champion? What do we see him doing? And so Jesus, Jesus shows us a little bit of how, how, how can we act when we're in the desert? Because it's going to be a when we're in the desert, not an if we're in the desert. Satan is coming for each one of us. And yet by God's grace, by his mercy, and with Jesus as our champion, we can be protected, preserved, and prepared. So when we look at what Jesus does and what he shows us, first thing that, first kind of takeaway for us is to let God's spirit be your strength. I don't know if you noticed, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame you if it bothered you when I read this, that Jesus is described as full of the Holy Spirit and then he leaves the Jordan where the baptism took place and was led by the spirit into the wilderness. Now, I don't believe that God's spirit tempts Jesus, but I believe that God's spirit leads Jesus to a place where he will be tempted for the purpose of showing us that he's our champion. But through all of this, what that means is that every single moment when the devil was present, that did not mean that God was absent. That in fact, God's spirit was right there with Jesus. And so for you and I, man, I know it's been a hard, hard season. It's been a year we did not expect there have been moments where undoubtedly you have felt isolated and you have wondered, is anybody here with me? But if you are a follower of Jesus, what you need to remember is the Holy Spirit has always been there. God will never abandon you, that he is there with you. After, after this temptation, the very next verse, 14, says that Jesus returned to Galilee 
in the power of the Spirit. He goes in full of the Spirit. He returns in the power of the Spirit. What that tells me is that it is possible to go through a desert season and if the Spirit is our strength, we can actually come back stronger, not weaker. Amen. That with, with the Spirit as our strength, we might go through a trial and actually our faith will be stronger. Our trust will be deeper. Our resolve will be more set in stone that we believe God is with us. And that's my prayer for our church, yeah, yeah. that through the process of re-entry and navigating the hazy season ahead that's got a lot of question marks around it, that we could actually come out stronger because we've learned to trust deeper in God's spirit present with that's us. Man, that's what I'm praying for us. Yeah. But it's not only that God's spirit is there. What does God's spirit do? Well, part of what God's spirit constantly does, and we see this in the New Testament again and again, is that God's spirit will point to God's truth. And so not only do we need to let God's spirit be our strength, we need to let God's word be your wisdom. Mm -hmm. All it takes for Jesus is to quote from God's word and he can do away with Satan's temptation. And when he quotes... He's quoting from the Torah, which even a, a young Jewish boy or girl, I mean, some of these verses and these stories, these were some of the now I lay me down to sleep kind of verses and prayers for the Israelite children. He's quoting ABCs of the faith to show how easily he can do away with Satan's temptation. But I want to point out one that, that even gives us a broader picture of who Jesus is and what he's doing. When, when Satan says, hey, why don't you turn this stone to bread? Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8. And I want to give you the context when he says you should not live by bread alone. The fuller context in verses 2 and 3 is that Moses, the Israelite leader, says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years. Okay, pause. Jesus fasted for how many days? 40, 40 days. Well, now we're talking about the Israelites being there for 40 years. And where were they both? In the wilderness. wilderness. We've already got connections being made here between what Jesus is quoting and what's happening. That he might, the Lord, might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Okay, hold on. Pause for a second. Like, what we have happening, what's, what's cluing us in is that Jesus is stepping in as the new Israel. Israel went in the desert and they failed. They did not obey the commandments, but Jesus, he did. And he goes to bring about this new people. Not only that, but God humbled you and let you hunger and then fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Manna means bread from heaven. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus quotes and the wider context of this verse shows us Jesus is the champion stepping in for the, for the first chosen people of God, Israel, and he's going to succeed where they failed. Yeah. He's going to win where they lost. Yeah. But not only that, Jesus is doing that for every single one of us coming in and he will prove his divinity in the saving of humanity. That's what he's doing. But I want you to appreciate that Jesus does not just give us a game plan. Jesus gives us the victory. That's why he's our champion. I don't just want to look at this moment and learn from it and go, okay, this is how I can fight temptation next time. That is important. It's important that we're in God's word. It's important that we remember God's spirit is with us if we're followers of Jesus. These things are absolutely vital and important. 
but we would be missing a huge piece of this if we walked away only with tactics for how to fight back against Satan's temptation. We have to see and savor and appreciate again Jesus as our champion. That's the whole point of this series because there are gonna be times and they happen more often than I want to admit when I go out in the desert and when Satan comes at me and I lose the battle and I let truth get twisted and I I let my faith get put in something else or in someone else or some ideal version of my life that's based on me controlling and not trusting God's control. And in those moments, what does it mean for Jesus to be our champion? In those moments, we have to remember that our hope comes from letting God's love be your foundation. That there is no foundation like the Father's love. See, this is where my hope is found. At Jesus' baptism, before he's gone to battle against Satan, before, he is committed, before he's performed a single miracle, before he's taught an eternal truth, before he would save the world, God says, you're my son. And I, I'm pleased with you. And everything about Jesus's ministry is lived from the Father's love and blessing. That's the foundation for who he will be and everything that he will do. And in fact, man, I was reading in Luke and I realized that when Jesus goes and Luke continually paints Jesus as the one who is the innocent one taking the place of the guilty. And that's what happened when Jesus would eventually go to the cross to pay for our sins, to pay for every time that we replaced our faith in God with something else. And in those moments, the grace that comes for us is because Jesus took our defeat to the cross and gives us his victory from the, from the desert against de- the devil. But on the cross, man, I got a little bit choked up reading this week when I looked and in the gospel of Luke, after hanging on the cross for hours, paying for the sins of the world, then Jesus called out with a loud voice. And the first word he says is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Mm -hmm. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Church, the first thing Jesus heard at his baptism affected the last thing Jesus said on the cross. That he knew. I'm not, I don't need to go to the temple and jump from the pinnacle so that my father will catch me. Instead, following God's plan on the cross, I can say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Dad, catch me. Yeah, that's great. That's the faith of our champion. That's, good. that's the obedience of our champion. That's the victory of our champion that even at the end, he knew the Father was in control. Yes. He knew that though he would be buried in the grave, three days later he would rise and he would prove himself a victor over death itself and the accuser. And that means... That means that the day that I was baptized and for every follower of Jesus, you received the Father's blessing. And he looks at you. He looks at each one of us. And he says, I love you. Man, for for every parent, we've got to remember, man, before I'm a dad, I am a son. Before I am a mother, I am a daughter. And I want to live from that place. For every for every follower of Jesus, before you are, whatever you'd fill in the blank, whatever it is that sometimes the Satan will try and tempt you to put your faith in, your stock in, validation in. And maybe you might be somebody that Father's Day is hard because you've been waiting for an earthly father's blessing that has not come. 
And then I want you to hear as well. The Father's blessing comes to you because of Jesus, because of his grace, because of his righteousness, because of his mercy. The Father's blessing is for every single one of us. That's what our champion wins. That's what he offers us. And so because Jesus took my defeat to the cross, that means that we get to live from that place of blessing with the foundation of the Father's love. No matter how many times we fail, the champion has already won. And I realize some of you are listening right now and you, you have never claimed Jesus as your champion. You've never seen him as your Lord and Savior, the innocent one who died in your place, who rose from the grave. And we would love to talk to you about what it means to receive the Father's love, to receive the Son's victory, to have your sins forgiven and paid for. We want to talk with you more about that. So I want to invite you today. One of the best things you could do is text surrender to the number on the screen. We would love to talk with you, to pray with you, and to see you claim faith in the champion, Jesus Christ. Because in the desert, there will be more battles and we don't stand a chance without the champion standing before us. Let's pray together. Oh God, help us, help us to receive the Father's blessing, to recognize again your love for us, the grace won for us through Jesus, the victory secure in our champion, Christ, And God, would you guard us, guard us from temptation. Store your word in our heart. Remind us of your spirit's presence and lead us forward, recognizing we can come back stronger because of your presence and your power working in and through us, the same power at work in our champion and savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his holy and powerful name, amen. 